All right, let's get, start, let's get started. My name is Mark Snyder. I'm sure most of you know who I am, but in case you don't, that's my name. I'm the youth leader, admin assistant, slash gopher. So I'm the guy that opens the door on Tuesdays. So you guys can bring your Christmas boxes. So Pastor Joey is on vacation. So he is gone this week and next. And because of that, I will be sharing today. And then uh, Jewel will be sharing with us next week. So why don't we pray and then we'll get into it, okay? So Lord, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. And Lord, we just ask, I just ask that, <clears throat> that today there would be a, um, a real change in our hearts. Um, that... Uh, the, the reality of our adoption in you would grip our hearts and that, Lord, we would leave here changed as a result. That any of us, whether far away uh, uh, or near, would be able to draw near to you and to receive your fatherly love that you have for us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So we're going through a series called Grace Upon Grace. And in it, we're talking about how God, being so good, wants to give us his grace to us. And I thought it might be a good place to start today talking about what actually is grace. You know, because we talk about it a lot. It's something we hear a lot in church. But what actually is it? The word grace is the word charis in the Greek, which means gift. So our relationship with God was initiated when he gave us his grace or his gift, which his ultimate gift was his son, Jesus Christ. But God's graciousness or his gifts to us do not cease after we come to know Christ, but they actually continue after we're saved. And so I've been thinking about how this topic of grace might be something bigger than maybe any of us had been taught growing up. And so today we weren't, we're going to be talking about adoption and how God as a father wants to give us gifts. And so in Matthew seven eleven, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. And today we're going to be talking about adoption. And I want to talk about how perhaps the greatest gift that God could give us as our father is the gift of adoption. Because we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are bestowed with the gift of adoption. In adoption, God takes us from being his enemies, lost, broken, and alone, to being his own sons and daughters, all by his grace, a gift to us. And we are told that this extends beyond just being cleansed and forgiven, but that we're actually seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 2. So not just uh, paupers, but princes sitting with him in the heavenly places. And even though this amazing topic of grace, which I find fascinating, which has transformed my life, is something that the Bible talks about repeatedly, there seems to be a lack of talking about it in the church. It's one of those things that seems to be a nice gift that goes along with all the other things that God gives us. But it's a box left unopened. It's something that I feel like we haven't really delved into to understand. It's all there wrapped up and ready to open, but we haven't for some reason. And so what I was thinking about this, you know, these gifts kind of remind me. When I was a kid, um, so I'm talking about last year, uh, when, my mom, uh, when my mom would hide gifts, uh, well, I would find them. And uh, has anyone else ever, when you're a kid, sneaking around trying to find gifts? And so I'd be sneaky, of course. So I would just open a corner of it, just enough to, that I could feel like I could know what it is. But I didn't, I didn't want to get caught, of course, so I had to, you know, put it back over, put tape over. Which, Mom, did you ever find out? She found out, okay. 
So it didn't work. But I would just uh, get a corner of it just so I had an, an idea of what it was. But when Christmas morning came, you know, that was the gift that I was the least interested in opening because I already thought I knew what it was. And so likewise, maybe adoption in the church is this gift that's been left unopened that we think that we understand. Maybe we've peeked at a corner of it. But in reality, it's this thing that God wants to give us that we're not even aware of. And so talking about that, there's a difference between being saved by grace and what we're going to be talking about today, which is adopted by grace. And the, the idea in the church is that the, uh, the teaching of adoption or the doctrine of adoption has been lumped up with salvation, which is true. Uh, when we come to know Christ, we're adopted and accepted into his family. But today what I want to talk about is not just the salvation of our souls, but the salvation of our hearts. I want to talk about how the conversion that we have in Christ when we come to know him, it's much more than just the saving of our spirits, but it's the saving of our hearts. And that salvation is meant to be experiential. That the doctrine of adoption brings a certain warmth to our conversion. So Jonathan Edwards, talking about the experiential side of salvation, says, Thus there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and the beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a relational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man can't have the latter unless he has the idea of the taste of honey in his mind. And so it's one thing to know the chemical makeup of honey. It's a different thing to know what honey tastes like. And so likewise, in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. In 1 Peter 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow in salvation. So indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this uh, Greek word for taste in the New Testament is often used for eat as well. So again, another example is likewise how we might know a uh, cookbook, a recipe, but it's until we take that and make a meal that it becomes experiential and brings warmth to our bodies. And so God is so good that he is not just interested in saving our souls, but healing our hearts, healing our emotions and our memories, that part of us. In Psalm 147, verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And Jesus, when he began his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, it says that he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And, uh, and the scroll of Isaiah was given to him. And it says that he went to the place in Isaiah, Isaiah 61, talking about this coming ministry of this Messiah. And it says this in Luke chapter 4. So this is Jesus speaking. When he had opened up the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So part of Jesus' ministry is to save the brokenhearted, is to save the hurting. So there's some Christians today who are saved and are going to go to heaven, but feel like they're living through hell to get there. Feel like they're bleeding and they're broken. We're saved but bitter, saved but hurt, saved but insecure, saved but proud, saved but jealous. So why are we like this? And so I want to share a story that maybe illustrates where this brokenness could have come from. Uh, in 1989, the, I had to look up how to say his name, Nicolae Ceausescu, the dictator in Romania, uh, after, his, uh, after the fall of the communism in Romania, uh, the world was terrified to find out that 
there was hundreds, thousands of orphans put in orphanages uh, because of the state of the nation. And because uh, birth control was outlawed, a lot of these kids who were unwanted were left to the streets and were put in these state-run orphanages. They were put in high chairs for hours, left by themselves, left for their cries. Their diapers weren't changed. They were caged like animals. And so after the fall of the communism in that nation, a lot of Westerners, a lot of Americans and those from wealthier nations came in to rescue these kids and adopt them. And so when they adopted, they brought them in, but they found out what many psychologists predicted is that by the mid-90s that these kids were crippled beyond repair. They had no ability to be loved. They hadn't experienced the love of a father or a mother to be consoled or comforted. And so they were crippled beyond repair, and a lot of them died by the age of 12 simply from a lack of expressed love. And I say that to say that love is not a luxury. Love is a necessity. Love is a necessity for the human heart. We were created to be loved. Without the healing love that God offers us, we may survive, but we will not thrive. We may be saved, we may still be broken. In the book of Genesis, when God is creating the world, we see that he creates an environment that is appropriate for the thing that's created. So he makes the sky and he puts the birds there. He makes the sea and he puts the sea creatures there. He makes the land and he puts the animals there. And likewise, God creates an environment for man to be, and that's Eden. In Genesis 2, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So God made first a garden, made an environment, and then took the man and put him in that environment. So Eden was Adam and Eve's first home. It was the place that they could be themselves, the place where there wasn't any chance of being broken, that they lived with unbroken fellowship with God and with each other. It was an environment in which mankind was created to thrive, an environment of love. It's what they were created for. But if they were going to be separated from that environment, they would be like a fish that's on land just flopping around or a bird underwater that would drown. Likewise, if we were separated from that environment, there was going to be brokenness, and that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. It all went downhill when the first orphan, Satan, came to the world. In the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel, it talks about how Satan started this rebellion against God. Originally, he was an angel of light, beautiful, but he looked on his own beauty and thought, like, how good am, how good am I? And so it talks about in Isaiah that he made these series of I statements. I will ascend the hill of the north. I will be like the most high. <clears throat> and in making all these, he decided he was going to rebel against God and go against his authority. And so this was quickly snuffed out, of course. God kicked him from heaven. But then he sees on earth God making creatures in his image. And so Satan determines to take these creatures who have been made God's children and to make them orphans like himself. Because in Luke 3.38, Adam is actually called the son of God. Adam was the first son. And here comes the first orphan trying to make him like him. In Romans 5.12, it says that through this sin, that death spread to all humanity. And likewise, we no longer take on the image of God by nature, but now we take on the image of the evil one in nature that is against God. And likewise, we take on the image of an orphan. That like Adam and Eve were driven from the garden as orphans, so are we when we're not living in this perfect environment. And this pattern of brokenness continues to today. I want to read you some statistics of the importance of fathers in our nation. 
So according to data from 2022, there are approximately 18.3 million children across America who live without a father in their home, comprising about one in four children. Those who live without a father have been shown to go to college less, go to work less, and go to prison more. According to 72.2 of the U.S. population, fatherlessness is the most significant family or social problem facing America. Would you guys agree? It's one of the most uh, pressing issues. The percentage of children born out of wedlock has grown 223% since 1970. 90% of homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of children who exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 90% of adolescent repeated arsonists live without, with only their mother. 85% of youth in prison grew up in a father's home. And roughly $60 billion is spent a, ye a year on these issues of fatherlessness. And so we see that we have been created to be loved by a father. That is innate to us. And no, no matter how much money the government tries to spend on it, it will not heal something that only God can touch. And without, without God's touch from heaven. And it's an issue that can only be remedied by understanding the truth of how dearly we are loved as God's beloved children. And our enemy, the devil, would love to keep, keep us inactive and ineffective for the kingdom of God by keeping us wounded and brokenhearted. It's his strategy to keep us completely bound and under control under his lies. And John 8, 44, it says that he is the father of lies. And that in, first, in 2 Timothy 2, 22, 226 rather, it says that he, is, uh, that he has taken people captive to do his will. And so the chains that this slave master, the devil, uses to control people are lies, that he uses to control our lives. And so we need to understand what is actually true. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But a lot of us in the church are living as slaves, but we're really free. And there was a, a sad story to explain what this could be like. Um, Another story. Uh, in July 31st, 1838, uh, William Nibs gathered about 10,000 uh, former slaves, or soon to be former slaves, because they were celebrating the Emancipation Act that was proclaimed in Jamaica. And so they gathered 10,000 together. You can imagine all these people are shouting and celebrating. And at the first stroke of midnight, they begin to sing, The monster is dying, the monster is dying, talking about slavery. And this continued, and, and they kept celebrating. In fact, they made a huge coffin. And in this coffin, they brought all the things that represented slavery. So they brought the, the fetters and the whips and the cords and all these things, and they buried them. And at the 12th stroke of midnight, they sealed it shut and buried it, shouting, the monster is dead. And so you can imagine that this was heard for miles around. But it wasn't heard far enough because there were some people, some slaves, on the remotest parts of the island who didn't hear that they had been set free. And so for years, they continued to work and they continued to labor and slave away while all the while be, be, by being set free, while being set free. And likewise, that can happen to us, is that we can live as sons or be declared free as sons, but continue to li live as slaves, live in bondage. And the devil is okay with us being free just as long as we keep us living as slaves. Every one of us has been affected, maybe even enslaved, by an orphan mentality, Feeling like we are never enough, constantly feeling like God is angry with us, or at least displeased, and struggling to know if we have our place in the family of God. But God has called us to more. Galatians 5.13 says, but you, brothers and sisters, you were called to freedom. 
This is what we're called to. Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, that's us who believe in Christ, he also predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So we are called to look like Jesus, to rise above and to live in sonship. Jesus is our elder brother who came to set a new pattern in place, in place of this sad example that Adam had left behind. <clears throat> One that was completely new, whole in his identity, sure of his father's love, sure in intimacy with his father, and we too can be free. And this is what he's destined for us, not to live broken, but to live united with him. But maybe we don't know where to start. Maybe we recognize that God has done this in Christ, that we can be reconciled to him, but we don't know where to start. And so Jesus, being the elder brother that he is, being the wise elder brother, provided us a map. He tells us a story about two sons and how to find our way back home, whether near or far. And that's the story of the prodigal son. And so in Luke 15, if you guys want to turn there or go there in your Bibles, that's where we're going to be the rest of the time. Luke 15. And this is the people around Jesus. So this is the audience that he's speaking to. So Luke 15, 1 through 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the author Luke begins with an audience of Jesus talking about the audience that he's speaking to. And we can see that he's speaking to two primary groups of people. He's speaking to the tax collectors and the sinners. And then he's speaking to the Pharisees. We're going to call them the, re the rebellious and the religious. And in this story of the two sons, which is what I'm going to call it, because a lot of times this is called the story of the prodigal son, but in Luke 15, 11, he says a man had two sons. So he's talking about two sons, two different ways to be alienated from God. And these two sons represent two ways to be separate from Christ, to be alienated from our father. And most of us are going to find ourselves in one of these two categories. We're going to call them the religious and the rebellious. If our hearts have strayed, most of us have strayed in either of these ways. Jesus wants both the rebellious and the religious to find their home in him. And here in this story, we find two lost sons. Likewise, at the end of each section, we'll see how the father responds to them and therefore to us. So let's start with the younger son. See, the younger son represents what we would call the rebellious crowd the sinners and the tax collectors. And so let's read about it. Luke 15, 11 through 20. The younger son said to his father, give me the share of my estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got everything he had together and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth with wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen in that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to be filled with the stomach, longed to be filled with, fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and I'm here starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So the, the story begins pointedly. It says that he looks into the face of his loving father and says, Father, give me the share of my estate. And in this day, the, the oldest son would get his inheritance after the father had died. So what he's pretty much saying is like, you're dead to me, or I wish you were dead. I want what you can give me apart from you. 
And this makes more sense because in the original language, the word property here is the word bios or life. So he's literally saying, give me life apart from you, the giver of life. That he wants the blessings of God without the blessing giver, his father. And this was the ultimate disrespect to his father. Because fathers at this time were not to be trifled with. And by doing this, he's taking a big risk. But his father sends him out willingly. And he doesn't control him or he isn't angry, but he responds graciously. And this is the kind of love that God loves us with. Uh, back in the spring, I was reading uh, exegetical commentary on, on Ephesians, like we all do, for fun. And there was a, there was a quote in that that was talking about uh, the different kind of love that God has for us and how it's different from the love of the world. And so uh, there's two different ways. There's the Greek word eros and there's the Greek word agape. And these represent how God loves us. So eros is how the world would love us. It is a love of the worthy, and it is a love that desires to possess. Agape, so that's how God loves us, is in contrast to both points. It is not a love of the worthy, and it is not a love that desires to possess. On the contrary, it is a love given quite irresponsive of merit. It is a love that seeks to give. So we see that the Father here is not desiring to control or to possess, but he's saying, no matter how you act, I'm going to give you my love. And it's that freedom that he gives the son that he then takes it. And it says in Isaiah that we all like sheep have gone astray. That our father is standing there giving us his love. But we all like sheep at one point or another have strayed. And so the son wanting to get as far, as far away as possible moves to Vegas. So he moves to Vegas and he squanders his living. And he's living in the pleasures of sin which the Bible says is pleasurable for a season. But the sin that you think is serving you will eventually come to want control. That sin is not a house pet, that it's something that wants to control us. In the story of Cain and Abel, there's this, you know, Cain is wrestling with the, the jealousy that he has with his brother. And God comes to him and speaks to him about this in Genesis. He says, sin is lying at the door. Sin is crouching. Sin is crouching at the door and his desire is to have you. But you must rule over it. So sin is depicted as a crouching lion, not, a, not Garfield, not a fat house cat but a lion that actually wants to control us, that it's not a pet. And so the sin consumed the life of the younger brother and the lives of many younger brothers today. But there is a point when you reach rock bottom, when you realize that sin is not going to satisfy, and the son likewise, real, likewise realizes, man, what I'm pursuing, I can't find anywhere else other than home. And so he comes to his senses, he starts to come home. And we find this language of longing, that he's in want, that he desires. There's something in him that he's not finding anywhere else. And so he begins to return home. And he realizes that his father is the only one that can satisfy these desires in his heart. In Jeremiah 31, it says, For I satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. So he sets off and he goes home. And as he's going home, it says that he prepares his speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And so you can imagine, this is a long journey. He's making his way home. He's walking. He's thinking, is my father going to accept me? Is he going to love me? Is he going to want to even see me? Is he just going to tolerate me? Am I going to be like one of his hired servants? And all the while, he's re repeating the speech to himself, thinking, will my father accept me? And then he comes home, and up the lane, he sees the house, and he starts to see some things he remembers. He wonders why that old dog hasn't died yet. He sees that uh, his mom's put out the laundry. He sees the kids across the street have grown up, and he's flooded with the memories of home. He's thinking, man, it's nice to be back. But then he's stonewalled with the feelings of shame. Wondering, is my father going to accept me? But it says that then the door swings open. And this is how the father responds. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So he's beginning to repeat this speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And so it's important to understand that in this time, men did not run. Children maybe ran, women maybe ran, but men did not run. And so what we see here is that the definition of prodigal, which I think we have, the definition of prodigal is God is how he's loving. We call this story the, prodigal, the story of the prodigal son, but it likewise could be called the story of the prodigal God. Because the definition of prodigal is spending money, resources freely and recklessly, wastely extravagant. And so we see that the extravagant lifestyle and sin of the son is superseded by the prodigal love of his father. That there is no depth that the son went to that the grace of God was not able to meet him. Like we were singing in that song. Our shame is wide, his love is wider. Our sin is deep, his grace is deeper. In Romans 5, talking about this, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So where any time we sin, there is an availability of grace. But of course, like Joey always says, that grace does not give us a license to sin, but it's the empowerment to live free from it. And so, and, and this grace is actually meant to lead us to repentance. In Romans 2, 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not really that God's kindness is meant to draw you to repentance. And so the love of God, what it does is it comes and it takes us by the hand from a place called sin and leads us to a place called repentance. Is that we're not going and leaving this place on our own, but love comes in that place, grabs our hand, and leads us to a place called repentance, called new life. And that's the way God intended it. And so the son couldn't even finish his speech. The son couldn't even finish his speech before the father interrupted and he wouldn't hear any of it. He says, bring out the best robe, bring out a ring, bring out sandals, put them on his feet. And then they killed the fattened calf and they begin to celebrate. But all the while, there's still this other character that isn't accounted for. That amidst all the celebration and joy, there's still a character that's in the background, and that's the elder son. And the elder son is representative of the religious folks, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees would have been deeply offended at this point. They would have been deeply offended to hear that they likewise were alienated from the Father, like the religious, like the tax collectors and the Pharisees. And so let's read about that in Luke 15, 25-30. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. So he came near to the house, hearing music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf and began, and it had, uh, because he asked him back, safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes and comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So if the younger son is enslaved to sin, the older son is enslaved to service. The younger son, the rebellious, is enslaved to sin. The religious is enslaved to service. This enslavement is not the result of something coming and taking them, but something that they rather enslave themselves to, thinking that God cannot love them apart from works, and so they work for it. And his intentions for working may seem kind of innocent at first, but as you look at the story, you see he says, look, or in other words, look you, 
Like, I've been doing this for you all these years, and the son comes, and then you ignore me and celebrate him. So what's he saying? He says, you owe me something. That I've been working for you, and because I've been working for you, I deserve my wages. And this is how a slave approaches it. So in Romans 4, 4, it says, now the one who, who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. So the son is taking the disposition of a servant, and because he's taking that disposition, any work that he does is not what a pleasure that he's doing it for his father, but it's because he thinks that the father's demanding it. So therefore, he's coming as an employee. I've done this. You deserve to pay me. And he feels like he's owed something. He's not doing it for pleasure, but for profit. And so what can be said of the, of the religious son in the same way as the rebellious son was that they were looking for life apart from the father. Just as the younger son was alienated from the father, so was the elder son. The elder son doesn't go to the feast because he says, I never disobeyed you. I never did anything. And so what we see is that the younger son felt that the hindrance was his sins. The older son is his goodness. It's because of his goodness that he won't go into the feast. It's not because of his sins. And so it's a rebellion. Both the hearts are resistant to their father and want to be out from under his authority. One rebelled by being bad, and the other rebelled by being very good. This means that we can rebel against God and by either disobeying his commands completely or by careful diligence to him. And what I mean is this, is that the rebellion of the religious son was that he was his own savior. They don't need Jesus. He doesn't need Jesus because he's his own savior. He's already got it figured out. In fact, he doesn't owe God anything. God owes him something. Because he's been so good, God owes him answered prayer, a good life, eternal life. And he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. And this is the, this is the danger, is pride. The pride of the religious son is going to keep him from sharing in the feast of his father. But again, the father is so good that he comes out and he responds. His response is this, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And so we see that the father still, and we see, again, this is for the Pharisees, this is for the religious crowd, is still pleading, is still asking the son to come in. He tells him and maybe even reminds him that he doesn't have to work in the field. That it's already his. It's all already his. That he doesn't have to work for it. That he can come inside. But we're left at the cliffhanger because we don't know how the, son, the, how the story ends. Jesus just kind of leaves it there. The younger son comes in, but the older son, Jesus kind of leaves it up to the Pharisees. How are you going to respond to this? Are you going to come in and join in the celebration of these people coming to me? Or are you going to stay on the outside? So how does this apply to us? Um, in his book, uh, The Prodigal God, Timothy Keller, uh, using this story, talks about how this is the two primary ways that people try to find happiness in the world. That there's the way of self-discovery, which would be the religious son, the younger son, and then there's the way of moral conformity, which would be the older. And so people try to find happiness in one of these two ways. Self-discovery believes that individuals must be able to pursue their goals in attainment, in self-actualization, and leave behind tradition. In this view, the world would be a much better place if tradition and any other barriers to personal freedom were removed. Then you have moral conformity. These people believe that putting the will of God and the community ahead of your own 
is how you actually achieve happiness. In this view, we can only attain happiness in a right world by achieving moral righteousness. And it's hard to imagine our Western society without these two groups of people. In fact, this is, we built two political systems based on this. The self-discovery crowd says, you bigoted people, the people who believe they have the truth and don't have any problems, are the problem with the world. We need progressivism to move us out of the past and into the future. And then you have the moral conformity crowd. He says, the immoral people, the people who are rebellious against all tradition, are the problem with the world. Moral people are the solution. Then the advocates of self-discovery, they raised their voice again and said, they're narrow-minded people. The bigoted people are the real problem. They're out and we're in. And then you have the moral conformists who they speak and they say, we are good and no one else is. And therefore we're in and you're out. But below all the shouting and below all the fighting is the voice of Jesus. And he says that there's a different way and who is actually in and who's actually out. And in Luke 18, 14, he says that the humble are in and the proud are out. Both sons in this story exhibited pride. They showed pride. The younger son came to his senses and realized he had messed up and because of that said, okay, I can return home. And he humbly accepted it. The older son, however, thought he was too good and to humble himself. And the story is left to see if he will respond. And this is why pride is such a deadly spiritual condition. It's because the Pharisees were actually the one that killed Jesus. Because they exhibited pride and they refused to see. They were blind by their pride. And Jesus has said, tax collectors or sinners are coming into the kingdom before you are. And this is why Jesus taught on it repeatedly. Because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so maybe you're living a backslidden life like the younger son, far from home. Or maybe you're a little closer. Maybe you're in the field next to home. And you're just refusing to come in, to have intimacy. And thinking that your careful obedience to God will bring you, gain you points with him or bring you closer to him. But, this is, but Jesus presents a new way to approach God and to relate to him. Right to him. Uh, instead of living in rebellion or religion, we want to pursue relationship. And instead of being enslaved to sin or enslaved to service, we want to be enjoying sonship. This is the new way that Jesus presents both the sons' rebellion against God is seated in the belief that God does not love them. The younger son believes that the pleasures of the world are greater than God's love. And the, younger, or the elder son believes that he's not good enough for God's love. So it only makes sense for us to begin our journey home to build a really strong foundation on the love of God. And the love of God is seen clearly, nowhere as clearly as in the death of Jesus Christ and the Father giving his son for the life of the world. So a couple of scriptures for this. Very famous. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. His one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. First John 4.9-10. This is how. This is how God shows his love for us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then Romans 8, 31-32. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what this is saying is that if God went to the length to give us Jesus, 
won't he also with him freely give us all things? In other words, he could not have gone to a farther length than he did in giving his son. There is no greater thing he could have given. There's not another thing he could have given to prove in his love for us. He went to the extent that he went, and there's nothing further than that. And so because he did that, we then have the assurance, the understanding that God loves us because we know that he could not have gone any further, that he went as far as he could. And so won't he also with him graciously give us all things? And we know that the, the value that the Father places on us by the price paid for us and the extravagant and the prodigal love of God is willing to pay any price. And the price that he paid for us was his son. And so knowing this, we can return home. We can return home knowing that we will not be met with fear or embarrassment or shame, but that we'll be met with acceptance. Ephesians 2, 17. says that he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. So the message for lost sons and daughters, both near and far, both religious and rebellious, is that the father, you can picture here, is standing from the front porch, and he's yelling out a message, and the message is peace. Peace. You can come home. I'm not going to reject you. There's peace for you. There's reconciliation. And he's standing on the front porch saying, will you come home? This is his message. And the reality is that we all have a yearning for home. We all have a yearning for home, a place where we can be ourselves without the fear of embarrassment or shame. But it proves to be an elusive chase. When I think of home, I think of the farm that I grew up here on the road. On uh, 29 here, we had 56 acres, a pond. And I'm, uh, when I think of it, I, I have this nostalgic feel of it because it represents my childhood. I think about the summer nights and the breeze through the trees and the cicadas singing and the early mornings walk back to the pond and walking home from school and jumping on the trampoline. You know, all the things that accompany home. And a lot of times when I'm driving by, especially in the winter when the, when the leaves are gone, I, I sometimes look through and I try to see that house back there because it's back the lane. And I think, man, it'd just be nice to go back there and just see what it's like now. But I think after thinking about it, I don't want to go back. Because these nostalgic feelings that I have, these hope, longings that I have for home would probably be crushed. Because it's not home. It's not home anymore. Home is something much more than that. And I find solace in these memories, but if I were to go there, they would be crushed. Likewise, holidays are coming up. And we go to holidays and hoping to have the joy and the warmth of family only to be left disappointed sometimes with those things. These attempts to find home are because we have been created for it. We've been created to have a home. C.S. Lewis in his book, Weight of Glory, talking about this longing, he says, apparently then, our lifelong, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fantasy but the truest index of our real situation. So we all need love, we all need acceptance, and we all need a home. And Jesus understood this. Before being crucified, he could sense his anxiety, the disciples' anxiety. He's beginning to talk about, I'm getting ready to leave, I'm getting ready to go, and they're starting to get a little anxious. And so Jesus gives them the scripture, the promise, in John 8, 14, verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And the KJV says it like this, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. And then a couple verses later, in 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me and obey my teaching, my father will love him. And we will come to them and make our home with them. So we have all felt that need for home and are unable to find it 
because we're all looking in the wrong place. Because home is not a place, home is a person. Home is not a place, home is a person. Home is not a place to be found on the outside. Home is a person who can be found on the inside. This is why everywhere we go, home to home, we feel like it's not really home. It's because we've been looking for it since Eden, since we were kicked out of our true home, thinking that we could find it in a place when we realized, no, it's in a person. And why it doesn't feel like home is because we've been created for the presence of God. That's why it doesn't feel like home. The older son failed to realize that his home was not a person, was a person, not a place. Just like the older brother, we have to be careful that we don't go to the place of church and think that we know the person of our father. God has made his home in us so that we can make our home in him. And he's done this by his spirit. In Romans 8, 15 and 16, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship and by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So the spirit of God does not make us slaves, but sons. And it is the spirit of God that testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And so with all this, what are we supposed to do? Some of us have to come back from living a prodigal lifestyle. Maybe you're you're the rebellious son, and you've been living far from home, been living in sin, you have to repent and realize that sin is never going to satisfy your deepest desires and that you have to come home to a father who will. And you're promised, as we see in the story, to be met with celebration and joy. Others who would call themselves Christians first need to ask, have I just been living near the father's house and sharing his last name, doing what I think he would think is best, Or do I actually know him? You are a son, but you feel like you're living as a slave. But Jesus makes a distinction between slaves and servants. Between slaves and servants and sons in John 8. In John 8.35, this is the distinct difference. This is how you know if you're living in this. John 8.35, now a slave has no permanent place in a family, but a son belongs to it forever. What often keeps sons from living as sons is that they feel like their place in the home is at risk. They feel at at the moment of sin, at the moment of some sudden mistake that the father is going to throw them out to the street. This is how employees work. Because if, like the elder son, he was working as an employee. And if you're an employee, if you don't meet certain standards, you have rights to be let go. But sons don't because they're part of the family. And I read a book uh, about six months ago uh, called Hyper Grace by uh, Michael Brown. And in it, he made a, uh, something that really helped me when thinking about forgiveness in God because there's a difference between uh, judicial forgiveness and relational forgiveness. Uh, as sons, we have relational forgiveness with the Father. But if, we're, if we've never known Christ and we're coming to him the first time, we're coming as enemies, we're coming as lost, and that's judicial forgiveness. He's, he's acquitting all of that we've ever done and that we're forgiven. But after you're a Christian, you then have relational forgiveness. So not every time you're sin, you're kicked out of the house. And you have to knock on the door to get back in. No, you stay in the house. It's just like you made a mess in the house. But then you come to dad and say, Father, I messed up. And then he cleans you up. But your identity, your DNA never changes. Likewise, there's part, I have DNA from my mother and father that I can't get out of me. It's just part of me. And likewise, God mingles his spirit with our spirit 
says that the spirit of Christ is one with our spirit. It's mingled with us. That the DNA of God is in us. And therefore, we may even act like we're something other. But the reality is, is that our DNA by the spirit of God has made us ch his children. And so with this understanding, we can rest. The words of the father to the elder son is that he is always with him. And that everything that he has belongs to him. In other words, you don't have to work for it. It's a gift. I gave it to you. It's already done. You can rest. We as sons and daughters have been created for rest, not just for our bodies, but for our souls as well. But the problem is, is that as Martin Luther said, the reformer, he said that religion is the default mode of the human heart. And that if left to our own devices, we as humans will sometimes just find ourselves working, find ourselves laboring for something that's already our own. And so we have to return to rest and to return there. And listen to the language of Hebrews here. For there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest always rests, also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So notice the language. Rest is something that has to be taken. He says, make every effort to enter that rest. In other words, rest is not something that we find natural as humans, but it's something that we have to return to. Make every effort to enter that rest. And then it's once we return there that we're to remain there. And if, in Galatians 5, 1, for it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And in Romans 4, 5, to anyone who does not work but trusts God, who justifies in godly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So if we don't have faith in Christ, if we don't live by faith in his work on the cross, we will work for it. And this was the problem of the elder son. But if we have genuine faith in the love of God and the finished work of Christ, then we can rest, knowing that what, what did Jesus say when he was crucified? It is finished. And because it's finished, we can rest. That we're able to set down our shovels and our garden hose that we're working outside and come into the feast of the Father. That we have been invited and the porch light is on. We don't have to keep any distance. We don't have to toil and labor for something that's already ours. And Jesus understood this. Being the ultimate son. It says that when he was baptized, he was baptized not doing any miracles to this point. Just living a simple life in Nazareth. And he came up out of the water and it says that the heavens were open and the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So you can imagine Jesus having this assurance, then goes into the, the wilderness. And then he's tempted by the devil. And the devil comes and he tempts him the same way that he tempts you and I with our identity. Prove it. He says, make these stones into bread if you're the son of God. But Jesus says, no, I don't have to prove it. I can rest assured in my father's love. And he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what was the word that just came from the mouth of God? You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus understood this. And then he said, follow me. He said, follow me. That he being the elder brother leads us into sonship. It's Hebrews 2, both the one who makes people holy, that's him, and those who are made holy are from the same family. For which reason he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So Jesus is calling us to a higher standard when it comes to sonship. And then Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So all of creation 
is waiting for us to receive the love of our Father and to demonstrate him well. All of creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God because without an understanding of the Father's love, we will not move forward with confidence to establish his kingdom. We will be like wounded soldiers, brokenhearted. But if we first allow the message, the message of adoption to cleanse our wounded souls, then not only us, but the world will begin to believe that God is truly God, that he is a good father, and that we can then carry that message of reconciliation to the world. That he is a good father crying out peace, peace from the front porch, and all who would come are welcome. And we can become like Jesus, our older brother who himself lived in perfect identity and intimacy with the father. We will no longer struggle with thinking that God is mad at us, we will know that he's for us. We no longer feel the crippling guilt, but we'll know that we're forgiving in our hearts. We'll no longer feel anxiety about our standing in the family of God, but have assurance that we're accepted. And then other lost sons and daughters will come to this great feast at the end of time, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where we'll all share in this. So today, let's, whether far or near, whether rebellious or religious, we all need to come home. And so can we do that today? Can we do that return home? So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today. Thank you for the message of the gospel, the message of your son. And Lord, we all um, maybe recognize that we've strayed, whether, whether far or near, but we're not in the home with you. We're not face to face with you. And Father, we want to share in that feast that you have, that joyful feast that you have for each one of us. If we would just accept it, God, I ask that you would go past the insecurities, the doubts. Help us to have simple, believing faith in the fact of your finished work and of your love. And that God, may we rest in that. May we, may we uh, return to that and rest in that. We thank you for it, God. Help us to stand firm in the grace of the gospel, knowing that we are beloved and accepted just as we are by faith in you. Praise God. Holy Spirit, I ask for a supernatural grace today for everyone in here. God, I ask for memories to be healed, hearts to be healed, minds to be healed in Jesus' name. Jesus, shepherd of our soul, come cleanse our hearts. Thank you for the reality of our sonship in you. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Sonship, I ask that you would just make that real to everyone here. Thank you, Lord, for it. Help us to have confidence in approaching you. May we stand with confidence, no longer paupers, but princes in your presence, moving forward with kingdom authority, knowing that all that is yours is ours. Thank you for it. I ask for extra grace today, God. We thank you that we are adopted by grace. In Jesus' name, amen.